Hi, friends. This is episode 40 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Thanks so much, guys, for continuing through this journey as we go through the very gruesome book of Judges. And it's amazing to see that even though humanity's failures just keep repeating over and over again, we are still seeing this consistent love of God, a character of God that is just totally unimaginable how graceful he is and how much he really wants to have a relationship with you. Now, this episode I took me completely off guard. I expected it to be a good conversation. I did not expect it to go to this depth. People were willing to share things I never imagined. We had more comments that received applause and love it cards than ever before. I know this is going to be incredibly meaningful for you because it just seemed to ignite our entire community. So I invite you to join us on this journey as we step into Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 16, and get introduced to God as he introduces himself to Gideon. Welcome to the Bible Lab. Are you guys ready? Good, here we go. Number one, some of the people here look kind of untrustworthy. Some of the people here look kind of untrustworthy. All right, I'll tell you what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a majority of no, probably 65 or 60% no. I'm seeing 10% yes. And the rest is maybe, which we all know means yes. You just didn't want to let the person sitting next to you know what you really think about them. Untrustworthy. Wow. This crowd, we're, uh, we're in deep trouble here. Number two, relationally, I am more loyal than most of the other people in this room. You're taking your time on this one. Okay, what I'm seeing... Oh, wow. I am seeing an even split between the yeses and noes, but I'm seeing about 20% maybes. So kind of 40-40 for yes and noes and 20% maybes. You realize when I was in college, one of the last things I wanted to hear from someone I was dating is I'm the most loyal person you'll ever meet. That was a death nail, wasn't it? You knew you couldn't trust that person the moment you dropped them off. All right. Not saying that those of you that raised a yes are that way. I'm just saying, I'm glad I didn't date you. Number three, most Christians live in fear. Most Christians live in fear. Greg, Grace, you can't get that any higher, can you, Greg? Okay, so I'm seeing about 60% yes, about 35% no, and about 5% maybes. Okay, so the majority of you are saying that the majority of Christians, most Christians, live in fear. We're going to deal with that a bit today because, um, yeah, I can see both sides of this. There are those of us that live in fear, those of us that don't, and there are those of us who live in spiritual fear and those of us that live in more of a secular sociological fear. We're going to deal with that today. 
Number four, I need your honesty here. If coming to the Bible lab were literally life-threatening, I would probably stay at home. Now, I asked you to be honest, but I really don't like what I'm saying. I'm thinking about 90%. Yes, you'd stay at home. I'm thinking about 5%. No, you guys are going to heaven. I'm saying 5% maybe, which means you'd stay at home. You'd listen to the old podcast. Literally life-threatening. Most of you would stay at home. I did not expect this level of honesty, but thank, thank you. In that with a question mark. Thank you. It's good. It's not that good. Number five. Spiritual droughts are my fault, not God's. Spiritual droughts are my fault, not God's. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm seeing 99 about 99% yes. And then I'm seeing out of, out of this crowd, and there's about 400 of us here, I, I saw about six no's, and I saw about an equal number of maybes. So you're saying spiritual droughts are your fault, not God's. We are definitely going to talk about that in, in a way today. In order to get our minds focused on how it must have felt during the time of Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 16, which is where we're going today. I have to ask you a question um, because this is where you would be if you were a certain character in the story we're about to look at. What advice do you give to your friends when they confide in you that their loved one keeps cheating on them with other people? So let's say your friend comes to you. Perhaps this is for real. And remember, this is recorded, so don't use names. Um, <laughs> They may be listening, Um, but perhaps you've experienced in the past, someone comes to you and says, I don't know, I just love him so much, but he keeps cheating on me. What should I do? What advice do you give them? Okay, hang on. Everyone wants to comment. So raise your comment or question cards. I have probably more comments than questions here, but raise your comment card. We're going to get a microphone to you right away, and I want you to share with me what advice would you give to your friend who comes and shares that? Right back here in the back. Yes, David. I tell them to stop being stupid and drop them like a rock in the water. (laughs) Can you tell us how you really feel? I mean, stop beating around the bush. Anybody else, what would you say right up here? I'll say pray about it first because I know so many people can forgive and once they have this confrontation between the two, uh, the other person changes and some don't. Mm-hmm. So it depends on the person on their level of forgiveness. Ah, see, you're going to heaven too. <laughs> okay, where are we at next? All right, this microphone. To me that depends because there is a certain talk show host in a local radio station who gave this very scenario. Would you stay or would you go? And me being a cynic, I noticed to the women, she said, leave, but to the men, she said, stay. Very consistently. Just pointing that out. (laughs) You're not trying to make friends today, are you, Greg? (laughs) 
Okay. Next, over here. You can do whatever you want to, but if it was me, I would leave that person because they don't really love you. If he loves you, he wouldn't be cheating on you. And if you take a chance to stay with him now, the same thing going to happen later. Because mm. once someone shows you who they are once, mm -hmm. believe them. Mm. Wow, that's pretty, pretty rough. All right, right here, Donna. I would say at least confront. And confront. Be, yes, because uh, it can lead to healing and mending mm -hmm. and um, restoration. Awesome. Okay, very good. Back here. If we're looking at the character of God, I would say I've cheated on God so many times, and yet he's forgiven me, so you need to first give it a chance. And I, I've seen it. I, I have a friend who confronted his wife. There was a man in a room at a hotel that literally jumped through the window and was running across the lot, and the blinds were shaking in the wind and she kept saying no one was here but 25 years later they're still together hmm. so and, and i think like a broken bone it, it the doctors will probably correct me but that mending is stronger at that point of the break hmm. all right good 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 over here if he's stubborn he doesn't want to live and really, really stubborn. I would even bribe him just to leave. <laughs> I'm serious. Did you say bribe him to leave you? The one who's cheating here. That is hilarious. That's honest. I did it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is not I confessional time. Just a, <laughs> if you like one-on-one -on -one consultations. Please email or call my office. Yes, ma'am. I heard what the gentleman say here about 25 years later, they're still together. Yeah. And something tells me to tell my personal experience. Good. I've been married for 31 years. Hmm. And in, Ju in July 25th, my husband left. He said, we're going to be separated because there was a woman who was talking to, and I suspect there was something going on. He kept on lying. Hmm. So, in 1992, he cheated on me. I gave him a chance. Mm -hmm. 26 years later, he's done it again. Mm. Right now, we're getting divorced because I caught him. Mm. I was in a hotel in Jamaica for a wedding. I caught him at the same hotel going to his room with the lady because wow. we were separated. The lady was a friend of the family, my mm. friend. Mm. So she went to Jamaica. She was invited to the wedding. Afterwards, she was uninvited by my husband's sister, because that was her, her son getting married. She said, you're not invited. She went anywhere. She didn't stay at my hotel. She stayed at the hotel next door. But at my hotel, my husband was in the room by himself, and I saw him. I saw them go into the room. Wow. I forgave him 26 years ago. The same thing happened. Yeah. So that's my experience. That's mm -hmm. what I said. I get hurt, and I would not advise anyone, if mm -hmm. their husband cheat on them, to, to forgive them or stay with them, because it would happen again. Ah, oh, wow. I really, 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 and I should see Lovett cards everywhere, I really appreciate your willingness to be transparent and real, because that's one of the things that helps the Bible lab to actually get beyond what most Bible studies do, which is on the surface, and we all go home, and we know exactly what we're supposed to do, and we go home to a world in which the answers don't match, right? We have the word bank that, that we have from the study, and we get home, we're like, I don't have an answer, 
Because I was told at church, the answer is this, and when I get home, it's not working. And so I'm deeply, deeply thankful for your honesty and your willingness to be open with a community. Those of you who are new with us, this is a community. This is not a class. And a community supports each other and are able to open up to each other in order to grow together. And so I love you. And I am so thankful for your openness because you're going to help us in this way. You're going to help us deeply in this way because many of you already know where we're going because you've already read ahead on the study guide because many of you were here since 6.30 this morning saving your seat. (laughs) Someone just said true. Okay, I wasn't here. I don't know who it was. Um, But many of you have read ahead. And that emotion that she just shared, I want you to harbor that emotion. Because of all the characters that we're going to look at in today's story, the most important character is not Gideon. The most important character is not even the angel who appears under a tree to bring him a message from the Lord. The most important character in this entire story is Yahweh God. And Yahweh God, as we've just barely entered into this book of Judges, a 350 to 450 year span of time, we've barely stepped in. And what is the consistent behavior of God's chosen people? Continual, habitual, unfaithfulness. So the advice you're giving to your friends is you better write them off because guess what? Character remains. And if they're willing to do it once, they're willing to do it another time if they think they can get away with it. And that's what many of of you are thinking in your mind. I have done counseling now 25 years. I am unqualified to do serious counseling. And despite that, I still have people coming to me for counseling. I'm not a counselor. I've had two classes, one in undergrad and one in grad school. And I could summarize it in one sentence of three words. Refer, refer, refer. (laughs) I'm not qualified. But despite that, people have come to me consistently with these situations. Pastor, what should I do? The Bible calls me to forgive. The Bible calls me to give these people another chance. Isn't that what grace is? Didn't Christ forgive, forgive, forgive? Isn't that what I'm called to do if I'm, if I'm called to act like Christ? And I'm sitting there thinking, are you an idiot? Because if, if they've done it this many times, this is a pattern of behavior. This is inner character. This is the DNA of how they view you in a relationship. You will keep taking them back and taking them back, and you are their insurance policy to ensure they're never alone. You are not the love of their life. You are the insurance of their social life. And it's sad to say, but I've had even more people come to my office and say, you know... So-and-so and I are in a relationship, and we love each other. There's just one problem. He's still in a relationship with someone else. And I ask, how long have you been seeing each other? And that is quite an overlap of relationship, many of them legally binding relationships. And I have to tell them, if they'll do it for you, they're going to do it to you. 
If they cheat for you, they're going to cheat on you. It's just human behavior. And so we find ourselves here becoming very, very strict on saying, if someone is a cheater, write them off. Let them go. So imagine my shock to read once more in Judges chapter 6, God who knows everything comes back and says, I just can't write you off. I can't let you go. You're not coming to me for repentance. You're just coming to me for help. And I just have to give you another chance. Now, I see the cards, and we're going to come to you in a moment, but we always, always, always in Bible Lab have to run everything through the filter of Scripture. Otherwise, we see God in a distorted way. And so I see the cards. Please keep the microphones where they are. I'm going to come to you in a moment, but we have to go through this section of Scripture. Otherwise, we're, we're going to say something about God that is less than accurate. And so if you will, open up your Bibles uh, or your Bible apps to Judges chapter 6. We're going to go through the first 16 verses. I have it up here on the screen for the biblically impaired. <laughs> and so follow along with me silently as I read aloud. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes coming with their livestock and tents, were as thick as locusts. They, uh, they arrived on droves of camels, too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. When they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. He said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. But you have not listened to me. Verse 11, then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, mighty hero, the Lord is with you, sir. Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over 
to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. All right, based on that, we've got a lot of territory to cover. I'm going to go through some background information, and then we are going to discuss this thing out. But there are a couple of things you can quickly miss by just reading through the English translation here. The first thing is you have to understand the cast. Who are all these people? First of all, the Midianites. You've heard of them before. They're the semi-nomadic tribe. They've lived in the Sinai Peninsula, Western Arabia. And all the way back to Genesis chapter 25, you can read about them. They were distant relatives of the Israelites. They're descended from Abraham by his second wife, Keturah. After Sarah dies, Abraham remarries. She is considered probably one of the most significant characters in the Jewish story that nobody knows about. From her, Abraham has six sons. <laughs> exactly. We're, we're doing the math because he was pretty old when he was a Sarah. Um, she has six sons. Midian is the fourth of six. They've been friends. During the time of the Exodus, they were actually pals. They didn't fight. Everything is great. During the Exodus, hey, long lost cousins. No problem until now. Then we have the Amalekites. Who are the Amalekites? We've heard of them before. Those of you who've come to the Bible Lab for a while, um, quite a while back, maybe a, a year or so ago, we went through a series called Life in the Wilderness. Do you remember the very first battle that the Israelites had after they came across the Red Sea? Who did they fight against? I'll give you a hint. It rhymes with Mamalekites. <laughs> You're right, Amalekites. You guys are so quick. These are also relatives. That's why the sister story back here earlier is so pertinent, because it's not strangers that hurt you the most. It's the people you should be friends with, the people you're related to, the people you invest in, the people who have a common history. Those are the people that hurt you the most, especially when they become your enemy and they work against you intentionally. The Amalekites are descendants of Esau, children of Israel. The reason why they're called children of Israel is they're they're the children of Jacob. Remember, he wrestles with God and finally... God hits him on the hip, and and he falls to the ground, but hangs on to the heavenly being's uh, ankles and says, I will not let go until you bless me. And the spiritual being says, okay, I'll bless you by revealing to you your new name, and your new name is Israel. This is definitely that first real split in, in the branch of the sons of Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Esau. And so the Amalekites are descendants of Esau. These are the first people that Israel goes to war. Remember the battle where Moses has to keep his his arms up? As long as his arms are up, 
children of Israel are, are winning. We studied earlier that these were also um, the first to weaponize and domesticate camels. This was the group, the Amalekites. They were the ones who learned how to train these incredibly weird-looking creatures with the, with the humps on their backs. They weaponized them. That's why camels have a very significant part to play in the story that we just read. Because the Amalekites were the master trainers, the originators of using camels in warfare. Even in the story in Exodus, they, one of the ways that they were getting at the Israelites before the battle was they were doing these drive-by camel whatevers. They'd come real quick with the camel, and they'd take your stuff from, from the people on the edges of the encampment. They'd grab whatever they want, throw it on their camel, jump on their candle, at camel, and race away. All these robberies with the drive-by camels. Now, something you need to understand. Uh, these, these people have been enemies from the start. Okay? They've battled with them since their very first experience of freedom out of, out of Egypt. And because of that... Uh, the Amalekite name itself became synonymous with several things. But I want you to understand that according to the Midrash, which is a lot like saying an, an ancient Jewish commentary where they would go into detail about things, this is, this is what the Midrash said about the Amalekites. It says that they were sorcerers who could transform themselves to resemble animals in order to avoid capture. Now, this was for real. This is a commentary. This is like you read it for authoritative literature. And that's what the people believed, that these people were sorcerers that can change into the shape of an animal. And that's why some of you have had this question, why did God order at certain places to not only kill uh, every person, but to also kill all their livestock, all the animals? You can read in 1 Samuel 15 verse 3 that it was considered necessary to destroy all of the livestock. And according to the Midrash, it was done to ensure that you destroyed all the Amalekites because one of those Amalekites might be that cow over there. Okay? Their name, if you were to say Amalekite, it was synonymous with saying arch enemy, a symbol of evil, someone who is an irreconcilable enemy. There's just no chance of ever becoming friends. Or an atheist, someone who didn't even believe in the existence of God. That's what you would say if you were, during Gideon's time, if you were to say Amalekite, that's the feeling you would have about these people. What were the conditions? Well, the Israelites prepared, in verse 2, it says they prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, my picture of the Gideon story, of course, always included Gideon hiding in the wine press threshing wheat, right? You have that story. We, we see that on the felt board from primary class, right? What did his house look like? What did his village look like? Was it a bunch of tents, perhaps? Was it a bunch of mud brick homes, perhaps? That's what I always thought. But did you know that's not what his village looked like at all? This is the fun thing about archaeology. I want you to read along with me here. According to Wettstein, excuse me, in the book Haran, page 45, I want you to gain a complete new picture of what did it look like during the time of Gideon. Where did he live? It talks about his father, Joash, 
where did his dad live? Where were all their homes? And what did they do when all these marauders would come in? Because it was seasonal. The Midianites, Amalekites, and, and the people of the east were not there the whole time. They would just come at the worst time. When the harvest was coming in, uh, right after the latter rain, and there's all these grasses and grains, they'd bring all their livestock in, and like locusts, they would destroy everything. So what were their living conditions? Here's the interesting thing. He says, quote, At some rocky, elevated, and dry place, a shaft was sunk obliquely into the earth, and at a depth of about 25 fathoms. For those of us who never served in the Navy, um, about 150 feet, 50 yards, okay, is 25 fathoms. Streets were run off straight and from six to eight paces wide, in the sides of which the dwellings were excavated. At various points, these streets were extended to double their ordinary width, and the roof was pierced with air holes, more or less numerous according to the extent of the place. These excavations had a second place of exit. We got to totally rewrite our picture of what it looks like during the time of Gideon. These people had made an entire village underground. You would walk into the secret entrance that was hidden, and you would go down 150 feet until the street, they called it, which is about eight paces wide. You would walk along, and you would see doorways and windows to your left and right carved out from the sandstone and the limestone. And inside, depending on how much time you spent and uh, your ability, you would have carved out your house out of the sandstone. And can you imagine all these people living in an underground village? Every now and then there's kind of this open space twice as wide as the normal street, and you would have some sunlight filtering down through these holes that had been bored into the rock ceiling, letting air in and out, and letting light exchange happen there. Some uh, even consider those, they would call them windows, to let the light and the air transfer. They're all living underground. And so whenever the, the, the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people of the east would start attacking, your lookouts would sound the alarm. And everyone would try to run to the entrance and drag as many of their livestock and whatever valuables they had to enter into the entrance to the underground village before they were seen. Now, on the fearful chance that one of the soldiers or, uh, might see someone going in or one of the people... Uh, of Israel would be too slow and see where they're going in to hide, they built a second exit. That was the emergency exit. So if they found you and they start coming in there, everyone had to run out the back exit. But the prayer was that no one would ever find where they had built this underground village. Is that different from the story you envisioned of Gideon? I know it was for me. This underground How bad do things have to get for you to say, we got to go underground. We got to live in underground bunkers. That was the condition happening during this time. Verse 6 says that Midian so impoverished the Israelites. This word that the NIV translates as impoverished um, is actually a Hebrew word, wayadal, which literally means to become small. 
Israel became small. And all scholars agree this was meant on many levels. They became physically, numerically smaller because of the attacks. They became physically smaller because they weren't eating good. But most importantly, they had become spiritually small. They were not grand. They were not seen as God's great people. They were seen as a very small group of people. So, as we get into verses 7 and 10, the children of Israel appear to have turned to the Lord for their frust- for, uh, in their frustration as a last resort. But I want to ask this question, and those of you who have been waiting, you can, of course, respond to the question earlier. But for those of you, um, for the future, Mikes, I want to ask, what does it say about God that he would even listen to this group of unfaithful people? Next, next week, you're going to see even more of how unfaithful they had become. But what does it say about God that he would even listen to them? And there's no mention of repentance or return to faithfulness. Does God still act this way today? Even though we don't get on the right track and religiously or spiritually or doing the right thing, does God still respond just at your cry of help? And does this make him a hopeless pushover? What are your thoughts? Let's start... Who has the mic over here? Michael. I was going to comment about your original question. Yeah. It's not a one-size-fits-all question. Yeah. It depends upon the circumstances. And, um, you know, the relationship I have with my wife is developed over a long period of time, both before and after our marriage. She during, knows... During your marriage. Not, well, yeah. not after your marriage, during your marriage. During the marriage. Yes. Yeah, it's still ongoing. <laughs> this is not an announcement, all right? It, it, <laughs> yeah. it, it better not be. I can't afford it. <laughs> <laughs> and it, but she knows me more intimately than anyone else yeah. and can cause me greater pain than anybody. You know, it, I see somebody on a bus, some lady on a bus, I might even say hello to her or something like this. But she can't cause me the kind of difficulty and pain and discomfort that Barbara could yeah. because of that intimate relationship we have. Yeah. And when it is breached, it's not just the idea that uh, somebody's been unfaithful. It's the idea that there was a solemn promise made to be faithful. Um, I had the good fortune of being, a, at one time, a United States Marine. Our motto is Semper Fidelis, which means always faithful, and it means always. And that's the same promise you make in the marital vows. Not that I'm going to be faithful for you for the next two years. It's I'm going to be faithful to you throughout our marriage for the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if, it, if I breach that, I've broken something, I don't know that you can ever repair it. I am a counselor, and I would, of course, my first thought is that they should go to counseling. Yes. But. And not to me. (laughs) (laughs) But more importantly, I would tell that person, my friend, you got to look at your own behavior. Mm -hmm. Many times we're always looking at what the other person did, but you need to take responsibility for your own self. Mm -hmm. 
what you may have contributed or not contributed to the relationship because just like you said before and like the lady in the back was saying, otherwise it will happen again. So you need to look at that because nothing ever changes yeah. if nothing ever changes. That's, and, and that's really hard. That's probably some of the most difficult thing to do and you can't get there in the first session, I imagine. Um, it, it takes quite a bit of time of, of getting to a place of just understanding how do, how do we shift? How do we shift from this happening? Because a, a lot of individuals find themselves being cheated on repetitively and getting to the point of realizing, but how do I change this? Um, in this story, we're looking at God himself, who is perfect in every way. And it is amazing how much responsibility he himself takes in the mending of a relationship. It just blows me away. This is the thing I can't understand. Uh, it's, it's the reason why they call it amazing grace. Uh, it, it's incomprehensible. I just, I don't get it. Because quite frankly, I, I don't think I can offer that. I was a chaplain at Pacific Union College for six years and one of the things I uh, repetitively uh, that we found ourselves running into is students getting in trouble, and especially in the area, uh, and it, was, it wasn't a huge amount, but you know, there's always students who have to prove themselves wrong by getting messed up with substances. And uh, there was a program for the students if they're drinking alcohol to go through alcohol.edu, which is an educational program to, to really help them understand what they're doing to, to their body. And um, students' first offense would get three days suspension. And I honestly cannot tell you how many phone calls I got from parents who were trying to help their student, like a defense attorney, uh, to be able to get off. No punishment at all, don't do the program, and don't miss any days. And it, it happens so regularly of parents saying, where's the grace, where's the grace? I thought this was a Christian school, where's the grace? That I, I realized that I, I don't think we can do what God does. I don't think we can offer grace. I think we can be graceful. But what we can't offer is redemption. And so that's what I would tell them on the phone. I, quite honestly, only God can offer grace, but what we can't offer is redemption because we want them to be part of our family. We don't want to be torn apart. And these steps are, are the redemptive steps because we want them back. Uh, can we offer redemption? And can you be okay with the redemptive steps? Because I just honestly can't understand how God can offer what he offers because it does seem... Truly, in his own interest, it seems counterproductive because people take advantage of that as if you're an individual that just keeps letting the cheater come back and come back and come back and there's no consequences. We see in the story that there are consequences and there are repetitive consequences. What are they? What is the, what is the punishment that God gives to those who are unfaithful? In today's story, the, the phrase is, he hands them over. In other words, I'll help you pack. You want to be with them? I'll miss you, but I'll help you pack. And God helps you pack, and he helps you go be with the other person until you realize that other person makes you miserable. And you realize, I've been such an idiot, and you cry out for help. What I don't get is God's amazing grace to say, I'll take you back. Because I have... A loving, forgiving grace 
that the world cannot offer. No human being can offer what God offers. And the people that take that as cheap grace and take that for granted don't know God. They couldn't possibly know God and treat him consistently that way. You have a life change. You have a breakthrough, and then you're totally committed to God, aren't you? And we see God over and over through the book of Judges trying to help the people have that breakthrough. Are you finally going to get it? Exactly. Over here. Comment. I, I, I wanted to, my gosh, so many thoughts were running through my mind. But I think the story that comes to me is Hosea and Gomer. Yes. And, well, two stories come to me. I'll tell you about my mom's story. But Hosea and Gomer comes to me because I think it's a very challenging story to read, mm-hmm. but it's a very profound story of love. Yes. And although Gomer was so mean to Hosea, his behavior never changed. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is the epitome of what love is. Yeah. And, and and love is not your action or reaction is based off of the other person. It's based mm-hmm. off of the Christ within us. It's, yes. it's hard to handle, yeah. but, but that truly is what love is. Mm-hmm. That the, the therapist side of me, in, in seeing clients and in, in realizes that I think, as the gentleman said, it is one of the greatest violations for someone to cheat on you because mm-hmm. now the trust and everything else has to be repaired. Right. Um, but the scientific side of me says we're always cheating. Mm-hmm. We're always cheating on God. People mm-hmm. are having emotional affairs, intellectual affairs, physical affairs. But we don't look at it that way because sometimes mm-hmm. it doesn't become sexual. Yeah. So when it's sexual, then people are like, how could you do this to me? Yeah. And so as my sister said up front, as a therapist, I'm always looking at what is the root cause? Yeah. Because cheating is a symptom of a greater issue. And so, as we said, if there's no consequence and no understanding of how to repair this, it's going to continually manifest and keep happening. Mm -hmm. Now, the last story (laughs) is my mom, who my dad had a lot of infidelity. The funniest thing is she knew that when she married him, Mm -hmm. and she thought she could change him which is a lot of the times what happens in a lot of these relationships. We know the character of the person, but yet still we think our goodness can change them. And so my eldest sister evangelized the family. So initially my mom, you know, she grew up Christian, like a Sunday Christian. But when she became a Christian or an Adventist Christian, my dad wasn't. But she recognized that her vow was to God. So we prayed for my dad. And she dealt with a lot of infidelity. And three years before he died, he gave his life to Christ. And I am convinced that if it wasn't for her consistent love, that would not have happened. Do I recommend that for everybody? Absolutely not. (laughs) Because every situation is different and everyone, uh, some of us are empathic. Well, we'll play the situation over and over and over and over again, and that in itself would drive us to a nervous breakdown. And others may be able to work together on repair. And so it is an individual situation. You know, are both people invested in repairing this? Is there an impulse control issue? Is there a sexual addiction issue? So it's never a one-sided issue, as someone said. There's so many aspects to look at versus us just saying, if that was me, I would be absolutely out. Well, you have to determine if it's you, then we'll see how you're going to handle it. <laughs> but, you know, as for God, his grace, as you said, is, is so covering that I don't know if any of us as humans could just have a quick fix for it. Wow. Beautiful. Beautiful.
A lot of love it cards on that one. All right, was this next over here? All right, AJ. Um, I, I think it's very interesting all the things that the therapists are now bringing up in the room. <laughs> um, uh, and, and for free. <laughs> Uh, I think our first reaction when we hear about someone cheating or, or breaking the trust is, oh, just get rid of them. Because that's such a core value that almost everybody in the world has, is, is this idea of loyalty and betrayal. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of the therapists have pointed out that it's, it's more than just a betrayal, it's really just a symptom of that individual. And it's not that different than drinking addictions um, mm -hmm. sometimes in terms of behavior. I was just looking up the statistics on, on divorce and infidelity, and it turns out that more than 60 to 70% of people say they will leave their partner after infidelity. But in reality, it's only about 30% mm. that actually leave. And 70% of marriages actually continue on after infidelity. Mm. Um, and I think for us, Looking at this, we're like, how can God do this? But when we ourselves are confronted with breaking off a relationship that we've had so much invested into, so much good experiences in, we have a hard time breaking that, I think, even in our own lives. And when we actually play that scenario out in our head and take time to think about it, I think that's actually a very difficult thing to do. Yeah. And to your question on how you would support, uh, answer your friend or advise your friend if they have an infidelity is, you know, other than um, tell them to get counseling is to uh, just say, you know, I support whatever decision you make because it's, it's really kind of hard to know what the circumstances are behind a lot of that. So usually it's very deep. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, AJ. Appreciate it. Right here. Throughout the history of Israel, we see that God, as you said, keeps forgiving. Yeah. His love is just, it blows our mind. Yes. Not only that, but even though he keeps getting betrayed, he even goes a step further. He comes down and dies for those same people. We can't do that. That's not in us. That's yes. not of us to do yes. that. But that same Jesus who died for us also said that the one reason for which he deemed it acceptable to divorce was infidelity because he knew firsthand how painful that is. Mm. And that for many people, you can't get over that. However, one thing that God, as we're seeing in this story that you're telling us, one thing that God did not do is continue to live with Israel as if nothing happened. Mm. So for people who, who are cheated on, his advice to us is don't stay together. Don't pretend like it's okay. You need to separate. Let, let that, give that person free will. They've chosen to be without you, to be with somebody else. Let them be. And if they then at some point see their mistake, then maybe if you find it in you, be gracious and give them another chance. But certainly don't stay in that house. Don't continue to have a relationship as if nothing happened at all. Mm. Yeah, profound, very profound, thank you. For sake of time and because I really want us to end on time this week, um, it, I'm looking to get a sticker star for ending on time this week. Um, can we jump down to verses 11 through 16 where Gideon asked this question, where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about? Ever gone through that experience? You know, I would love to live during the miraculous time. And then I, basically we're, our expectation is that we'll have a good attendance, um, but nothing miraculous. And Gideon is living in a worse time where 
It's not during a time of prosperity. It's during a time of scarcity in every way, including spirituality. And he's saying, what? where is it? I, I thought this was supposed to be God's people. I thought this was supposed to be good. I think of uh, one of my students that I, I taught his high school Bible class his senior year, and then uh, several years later, uh, praise God, he's in seminary, grad school, studying to, for his master's to be a pastor, and I receive an email. He says, look, I remember all your stories about how much fun you had and all these things that happened. Were, were those stories real? Because where is it? Where are the cool people to hang out with? Where's the fun? Where's this? Where's that? And the reality is, you got to make it. You have a part to play in your life's experience, how phenomenal it is or how average it is. And it's true spiritually as well. Gideon asked the questions, where, where are all the miracles? The question that should be asked is, why am I living in such fear? Because he is living in such fear that he's living underground. He can't thresh wheat the easy and productive way. You know, when you thresh wheat and you're throwing the shaft up into the air, you're counting on the breeze, the wind to blow away the lighter part and to allow the seeds, the, the grain to fall straight down. Doing this in a carved out wine press does not afford you the wind. He's living in such fear that he's actually trying to do things probably one of the hardest ways you could possibly do it. Does God depend on our faithfulness in order to do the miraculous? Or does he cease his work whenever we turn away from him? It's a question we all have to ask because this is the one on our mind. Okay, based on my faithfulness, because all of us looking here... Uh, I guarantee most of us would not be completely transparent in how faithful we've been in the past 12 months. Because some of us have had some incredible breakthroughs, right? And then there have been the other days. The days when we, we really just want to push aside, compartmentalize, uh, warehouse it somewhere that nobody opens up that box. And we ask ourselves the question, is it because of my unfaithfulness, my lack of consistency, is that the reason why I'm not seeing everything that in my heart I dream of seeing in a spiritual way? Who is next right here? Yes, yes sir. Yes, if, if you look at Israel's unfaithfulness here in this chapter, hmm. um, it looks as though it's, their, it's the natural consequences of their own choices that eventually drives them back to God where they cry out, and so forth. And you see over and over again that God accepts their choices to not have a relationship with him. And it's a generation or two before a, a, a change takes place. Yeah. People, of course, don't have the same time horizon that God has hmm. to repair these relationships. So I think, I think that's one reason why it's important for us to accept the fact that we can love a lot of people we can't be married to. Hmm. Um, and that the natural consequences of some people's choices, at some point we have to accept. Um, and, and 
in, in Second Thessalonians, it even says the people believed the deception, and if God sees that, that the natural consequences of, of my choices is the way to get me to some realization of what I'm doing, he says, let's bring it on. And he gave them more deception. So let's make it happen as fast as we can if that's the way we get hmm. to insight and to realize that we've, what we've brought on ourselves uh, that prepares us to come to God, look at different choices. Hmm. I love it. I see all the cards, and can I just say a great big apology? Because I have to close here, but I just want to say, wow, thank you for allowing us to truly go to depth and be theologically profound today. I want to leave you with verse 16, which in my mind is the most powerful verse in this section. Because here Gideon, who says, I'm, I'm the least, I'm from the least tribe, Manasseh, uh, out of my clan, uh, well, we're the least family, and I'm the youngest. Why are you coming to me? Very much an echo of uh, Samuel coming to David, the youngest of, of Jesse's sons. But the Lord says to him in verse 16, and I want you to take this to heart, because this is a message I, I think God has for you today, regardless of, of your fears. Whatever's going on in your life, regardless of your fears, this is God's response to Gideon's fear, and I think it's completely applicable to you today. The Lord said to him, I will be with you. I will be with you. And you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. God's going to prove that in the coming story. But I want you to leave this place knowing, regardless of what you're going through, regardless of the challenge you're having spiritually, relationally, whatever, God promises if you'll turn to Him and call for help, God says, I'd love to. I will be with you. And when you go into whatever it is that you're dealing with, it's not going to be huge. It's going to be so simple. It will be manageable because I'm the one who will do it for you. You just get to have a front row seat seeing what only God can do. In your spiritual fears this week, whatever it is, whether you're avoiding something or you're, you're really wanting to step forward and, and be a stronger influence in certain relationships in your life, Please read through verse 16 of chapter 6 again and again and again and pray, God, let me experience this this week because I can't wait to see what my life is like when you are with me and to see the battles that we can overcome that I, I always thought that I needed to just give up and go underground with these emotions and these dreams. God says, no, come out into the light because I am with you. Well, I warned you, this community was ready to talk about this topic, and I'm so thankful for them, and I'm thankful that they were willing to share with you as well their journey of faith and forgiveness and courage. And we all just pray for you as well as you're going through your journey, that God really will help you to understand his grace and understand how to share that with the people in your life as well. Now, next episode, you don't want to miss it because we're going into part two of Gideon. How can you pray and know exactly what God wants you to do? 
are signs okay? Is it okay to ask for providence, or is that something that God really doesn't want you to do? He just, from time to time, when necessary, he does it. You'll get to hear all about that conversation in episode 41. We hope to see you there. God bless you on your journey as you strive to have a closer relationship with God. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at Programs are recorded each Saturday at 1030 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.